In the reading corner today, I'm joined by Lucy Cuthew, who's the author of over 30 children's books, including retellings of traditional stories, phonics readers, and nonfiction, published under the name Lucy George. She has an MPhil from the University of Birmingham, and her thesis, I know, will be of interest to many of our listeners, uh, Fantasy, Morality and Ideology, a Comparative Study of C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia, and Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. Lucy also has an MA in Writing for Young People from Bath Spa University, and I'm sure that we'll touch on that uh, in a moment. Before becoming an author, Lucy worked in children's publishing and was awarded the Kim Scott Wallen Prize, which celebrates the achievements of young women in publishing. Today, we're going to be talking about her debut novel for young adults. It's an astonishing achievement. It's taboo-breaking, bold, unflinchingly honest and moving. I wept several times while reading it, both for the teenager that I once was and for the young people today. Blood Moon is about sexuality, attraction, friendship and first romantic love. It's also about betrayal, mistakes, regrets, periods, misogyny and internet trolling. It's ultimately about being brave, taking back power from those who would reduce you to nothing. Welcome to In the Reading Corner, Lucy. Thank you, Nikki. I wonder to begin whether you can tell us briefly about your story. I've picked up some of the themes there, but uh, without giving too much away, lead us into the story. Okay, so Blood Moon is about a girl called Frankie who is really into astronomy and stargazing um, and that's a hobby she has with her best friend called Harriet and it's the story of what happens after her first sexual experience during which her period starts and how her original ambition which is with her friend Harriet to take a picture of the blood moon which is coming up a few days away from the beginning of the story how that ambition is eroded and then gradually everything else in her life is eroded by going viral. So I think I read um, that the story was originally going to be called a horrible love story. Is that right? Or have I made that up? Oh no, that's, that's an, oh, oh, that gave me a wave of fear then. That's the first (laughs) novel that I wrote, which um, is blessedly in a folder somewhere on the hard drive <laughs> okay not the same story so, <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't called blood moon to start with it had a ridiculous title because I wrote it on the MA where the, you know the day before I was submitting it, I was still thinking I don't know what to call this and I hadn't called it blood moon because at the time Sarah Crossan's Moonrise was you know everywhere it had just come out and it felt really like I I can't call another verse novel with a moon title again it's just going to seem too derivative but I think I'd already written in the moon stuff before her book came out um and so actually by the time I took it to my agent and by the time my agent took it to Walker um we had put the title blood moon on it it was the obvious title really and I love that it's got blood in it I mean it's just it's it's so obvious it's begging to be called that really Absolutely. Um, So you've mentioned that you started writing this uh, as part of your MA. Was it always going to be a verse novel? 
that is how it started actually was um i had a few different projects going on one of the brilliant things about the ma is that it gives you the challenge and the opportunity to write something that you weren't expecting to write they encourage you not to come with the idea of a novel that you're going to write but rather to come and explore um through your writing and everybody works so differently but um one of our tutors steve vote gave us um 15 prompts to work through each day. And one of them was She Sells Seashells by the Seashore. And um, I started writing and I just followed the rhythm. So I heard a voice and I just started writing and it just flowed. I found that that way of hearing a little bit ahead was almost like putting down train tracks for my carriage to keep on going. And it, a big problem that I have with writing is that having been an editor for so long, the editorial voice in my head is very loud. And the voice that's saying, Mm, you shouldn't put that word because this means this and in publishing that idea is maybe a bit controversial and or it's for young adults so you better to, you know it's like a, a cacophony of voices really and so the verse really helped me to get into the flow and that's why I, I carried on in that way and um, I had read one by Sarah Crossan and I'd read The Long Way Down by Jason Reynolds and I just loved both of those books so it felt like a perfect fit really. Mm. you talked about your editorial voice there um mm. did you ever have any doubts about uh the subject of the the book you know it's funny that you mentioned a horrible love story at the beginning because that book I wrote almost maybe too prescriptively too much thinking about what I knew about YA and what I knew from meetings that I'd sat in where we talked about you know acquisitions meetings oh no we can't do that in YA and oh you can't put that in a book for young people and a lot of censorship in a way and so when I went to the MA I actually had decided already that I just wasn't going to worry about getting published what I wanted to do was to write something that felt true to me and that I cared about and so it almost liberated me to not think about that and to just once the period stuff started happening and once I'd thought about the sexual nature of what was going to happen of course I was being careful because I don't want to put something really graphic into the minds and hands of young people but also it did free me to just write what I thought felt true like to say you know huge congratulations to walker books actually for picking it up and i think in my email to you i mentioned something along the lines of feeling similarly to reading junk for the first time which of course anderson press were very brave in their publishing of that because it really does have that feeling of a a, a strong voice and an honest voice I've read your articles too with great interest and in one article uh, you talk about watching a red hot chili pepper video revisiting your youth and you write that even as a writer and editor of teenage fiction who spends hours inhabiting the minds of teen characters I'm struck by how much has changed over a short period of time. The years 1996 and 2016 are different universes in which to live your formative years. So how did you approach representing the experience of young people today? I went and I talked to a lot of young people. That is how I did it. And 
it's the most frightening thing about writing YA now. I think it's quite intimidating. It seems like a different world. But when I talk to them and listen to what they were saying, it's not a different world. It's the same world I live in. I'm attached to my phone. My online friends matter as much to me as my real friends almost some days. And, you know, my friends in groups and people that I follow on Twitter um, and so I just spent a lot of time listening to what they were saying and trying to really empathize with their position you know and not judge and not think that I would be any different if I were a teenager now and that is a challenge because there's so much bad rhetoric around how teenagers use their phones and so much judgment but when there was a particular group of four young girls um, one of whom is um, a friend's daughter and they let me hang out with them for an afternoon and you know it there are things I, I couldn't and wouldn't ask them but there was lots that they told me and lots that I observed so I, I hope it feels authentic but I don't know I'm sure young people will tell me if it doesn't. I think one of the things that's interesting is that obviously the mistakes that are made in the story are amplified um, but the mistakes are quite similar to the ones that we would probably have made and I'm not a millennial I'm a baby boomer so that's even further uh, in the past so there's as much connection in a way as there are differences tell us about some of the mistakes that are made in the story so I think the first mistake if if that's if that's even the right word is that right I suppose it is the right word is um Harriet Frankie's friend who sends a picture to a teacher of herself and I, I should add here that there is nothing in the book which I haven't either had directly reported to me that has really happened in the last couple of years so that's that's actually based on a story that did happen in a school that a student had sent a really inappropriate picture to a teacher um and then i suppose some of the other mistakes are just sharing things that they shouldn't share and amplifying noise without understanding the impact of that noise that's being amplified and I think I'm also trying to look at that judgment, judging each other, judging one another's actions without empathy. I will admit that when I started reading, I thought I was going to be reading a book about teenage girls for teenage girls, perhaps because the book is very intimate. But it dawned on me that as I, as I was reading that that was an erroneous assumption. And that actually this is a book for all young people. When you were writing it, did you hope to be able to speak to all teenagers, girls and boys? I think realistically, I couldn't silence the awareness that I have that predominantly YA is read by girls. But I hoped so much that this book would find its way into the hands of teenage boys. And I still hope that so much. And the likelihood of that happening well I don't know I mean it's so hard it's so hard to know how how books like this will land and it depends on whether teachers pick it up and put it into the hands of kids but um I definitely hoped that teenage boys would read it and that they would 
see and understand more about menstruation and that they would see and understand more about female sexuality and about the similarities that we have in our feelings i think there's there's such a suppression of female sexuality in our culture and in our society that that girls are either sluts or virgins that girls don't have the same impulses the same feelings and i think i wanted to make sure that that was all in there in its truth but also how it feels to have those feelings and for them to be so wrong in the eyes of the dominant culture i mean in a way you may have answered this question but i was trying to envisage you in uh, the inevitable author events that will follow from this hopefully when people can get back to back back face to face um, again and the possibility of you being invited into schools to talk and I wondered what you would say if you're offered a girls only audience. I have thought about that actually and what I would say is this book is not for girls and I will only talk about this if you have both um, sexes in the class and and that's not just because it's not just an issue that affects girls. I don't like any kind of gender separation. I understand sometimes it's necessary, but I think it puts transgender children, non-binary children in really awkward and difficult positions. And of course, girls are not the only people who menstruate. So I would really strongly oppose any kind of gender divide when I go and talk about this book. Um, I suppose, unless I'm at an all girls school. That's really interesting. Um, and so following on from that, have you thought about how you will approach those events? Yeah, I think I've, um, I'm really looking forward to going and talking to young people about it. I have done a couple of school events when I didn't actually have the book. So obviously they haven't read it. And I think when I go and talk to young people about it in schools, part of what I want to talk about is periods. And I've thought about maybe putting up some images of blood um like from Quentin Tarantino films or just a video game maybe um and then putting up maybe the cover image of my book maybe a tampon with some blood on it maybe a sanitary towel I need to think quite carefully about that and it'll be context dependent but just to see how we react to those different types of blood and part of that message is just normalizing talking about periods and so I hope that um, part of the discussion can be just talking about periods in quite an open way as a function of our bodies rather than this sort of strange and secret thing. I'd also quite like to do some work with actual period products because I think teenage boys just don't know what they look like. I have read such a shocking number of times now that quite a lot of boys think that a period pad sticks onto the outside of the labia. That's what the sticky bit's for. Oh my goodness. Uh, I mean, I did have a question that I was going to follow up with a little later on, but it seems yeah. to link to what okay, I, I was going then. to say here, and that is to do with the kind of wider cultural context. So if we just take advertising for a moment as, as one aspect of our cultural context, we're still in a place where largely um, where products are advertised, blue liquid is used instead of anything red, for example. Have you done much research around the religious, cultural and kind of media aspect of this? 
I've done a lot of research about um, the culture in Britain and America, but I would say I am not at all an expert on the different religious aspects that play into um, menstruation and periods. What, what, what I do know is that it is very different in different cultures. And that's obviously a big part of what I'm going to need to consider when I'm going into schools to make sure that I've got that information and that I'm not making anybody feel uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, I think in the book, what I'm, what I've very deliberately done is make her period clash with a sexual encounter because that feels to me the most taboo thing. I think I would struggle to imagine that just a period alone could go viral in a British school. Um, but I think once you involve any kind of sex act or sexuality for a girl, then you've got a recipe for something that will, yeah, something that will spread like wildfire. Interesting. I'd love to talk about how you deal with the adults in the story too. Okay. So Frankie has a mum and dad. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't think of anything more embarrassing, but of course you deal with that. Um, and there are teachers as well involved in this. So tell us a little bit about how you thought about bringing them into the story and the role that they fulfil. I suppose one of the first things you're confronted with when you're writing for children or teenagers and especially young adults is how you get rid of the grown-ups. And in a YA novel, maybe less so because teenagers do have that freedom away from their parents or their guardians and I uh, but I really wanted them to be part of it because I think what I see so much of with friends who have teenagers is just them not knowing how to navigate what's happening to their teenagers online and how to how to deal with that and so I suppose I wanted to imagine I suppose it maybe a part of it was indulgence on my part to imagine how I would deal with that situation and what you can say and what your reflexes are, what you want to happen versus what is actually possible to act on. You know, there's actually very little you can do about getting trolled. Obviously you can report it, obviously you can block. Um, but I think what my research turned up is that for, for a lot of parents of teenagers, there's actually very little they can do and that you feel very powerless about that. And then on the teacher side, I just I think in particular while I was writing this book I had a lot of love for my teachers because I was on the MA and I had Jane Din, who was just such a brilliant teacher and somebody who I really looked up to and so I wanted there to be good teachers in the book and I know so many great teachers who really care about the students and really are invested in their lives and are good role models. The story is also about friendship and Frankie's next door neighbour Harriet is a close friend. This is partly about um, betrayal uh, on both sides. Um, tell us a little bit about Harriet. Yeah, she's a complicated character. Her and Frankie, sometimes when I was writing the book, I started to wonder if they were codependent, these two girls, and whether they actually should get some kind of therapy, um, because they are very entwined in each other's lives. But I did not want to shy away from that, because that 
is what teenage friendship feels like that is what intense and meaningful female friendships feel like you're in each other's pockets you know each other's thoughts and moves and there is so much opportunity for betrayal if anything starts to go wrong and that trust is broken down but also of course it's a time of your life where you're meeting other people and maybe having romantic relationships or sexual relationships which come in between that so I just really wanted to explore the dynamics of that friendship and actually it's incredibly robust as a friendship and how they find their way through that argument and confrontation and healing was really was really important to me it was also really interesting for me to explore it's interesting that you can come back from something that feels so um intense and so cruel uh but as coming out of a place of hurt um a lot of the time so it feels very very real the other thing that you do with your characters is that you do show them as being rounded they have interests other than just boys and relationships and meaty thighs and Frankie's really interesting she has this strong interest in astronomy uh, and I know that you like listening to science podcasts mm. so was this an opportunity to get some of your uh, passion for science into the book? I think it was you know I'm a huge fan of Adam Rutherford and um, his podcast he does Inside Science and he also does The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry with Hannah Fry and I love how you can you know you can just go for a walk or you can be driving to work but you're absorbing all this amazing science information I'm actually quite bad at retaining it so I feel like I know loads about black holes because I've listened to four podcasts and then I try and tell someone else about it and it's all gone but yeah the book definitely gave me the opportunity to do loads of research on that and find out what cool stuff was happening actually when I was writing it it was when the um, LIGO detector had just detected the first gravitational waves that had been predicted by Einstein. And it was just this amazing moment in science. And it really inspired me. And I just thought, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if my main character, um, a girl who are so often not represented well in STEM subjects, who's really passionate about STEM, is living at this incredible time where there's all this amazing photography um, and I think maybe it lends itself to some of the humour in the book as well. So I enjoyed that aspect of it a lot. There's a point at which, um, without giving too much away, there's a point at which you feel that um, her future is going to be determined by this um, internet issue that, that arises. But thankfully, uh, there is a way out of that. And I think that takes me on to my point really about the novel being incredibly empowering or about taking back power. Was this really important to you? Yeah, I think that was a starting point. Once I realised what this story was and that it was going to be a story about an online shaming, I absolutely could not write that book without offering some hope and I know there are lots of stories out there which maybe are more realistic in a sense that you know don't don't display everything as kind of wrapped up and neat and perfect but I do think just because of the scope of the book um I wanted to include how you might move past an online shaming and 
reclaim your reputation and reclaim your power and find your voice again so that you're not continuing to live in that shame. I read, um, so you've been publicly shamed by John Ronson, which I don't know if you've read it, but it's absolutely amazing, like a collection of case studies about people who've been online shamed. And at the end, there's a little bit about how people maybe recover from online shamings. And some of them don't, some of them, their lives have really quite seriously been destroyed. And I think probably more realistically, for somebody who has been shamed online, it would take quite a long time to do what happens in this novel quite quickly. Um, but I didn't want to drag out the story. And I think, yeah, I really just wanted to offer hope. I think that's so important. If you're living your life online, I think it's really key to see that there's a way for it not to destroy your life. And after all, a novel isn't life. It's there to convey other things. Um, so you know thank you for that I understand that your next book that you're working on I'm sure you don't want to tell us too much about it but I understand that you're working on uh, an idea around internet porn next is that right yeah that is right I while I was doing the research for this book for Blood Moon I was researching a lot online and I was researching different bits of the internet that are quite grim um, chat rooms and reddit you know threads and subthreads about periods and period shamings and you know gross stories and anecdotes about girls who've done things and da, da, da. and invariably while I was there I became aware of how many young people are on there and what they're talking about and it's just so much conversation about porn and then I just suddenly was like I can't believe there isn't a YA novel about this if anything is so important that really I would want to put into the hands of teenagers now and not have to talk about myself it would be a book that would tell them how to deal with just how much porn there is how invariably they're going to see it that's that's one of the other things that those teenage girls that I talked to told me about which is that the classic kind of thing that happens is when you start secondary school someone usually a boy they reported to me and I've since read it a lot will hand you a phone and it'll have like a cover picture of a dog or something cute or it'll look like it's going to be something funny and then you watch it and it's some really graphic porn um and also of course you know if you want to know what sex is like and if you want to know what to expect if you're starting to explore that part of yourself the internet is the first place you're going to go because that's the first place we all go for information now so um i have been researching that for about a year now and it's such a complex subject but i'm finally writing it <laughs> it's been a real pleasure talking to you today about blood moon just before we leave it completely um, what are your hopes for the book apart from the fact that obviously you want lots of readers honestly I just like people to have an experience reading it like you do when you watch a film to be entertained by it but if there's a more serious message then I think it's that if you're not talking about something you're leaving room for shame and shame is such a toxic emotion it really eats up the soul thank you so much for talking to us today lucy you're welcome thanks for listening to in the reading corner with just imagine 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.